But, but I too, as everyone who's been up here, want to say happy Mother's Day. So hopefully you get to enjoy uh, a great day doing whatever you want to do. Um, I, I wish you well. Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're, we're back in the book of Acts after a one-week detour, back studying this book verse by verse. And if you remember back to our last few sermons uh, out of chapter 3, we saw this very important healing of a certain lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple. And then after the healing, we see Peter's uh, subsequent sermon to those who had gathered to watch the miracle play out in real time. This lame man who everyone knew, he, he was laid there daily, was now walking and leaping and praising God, and, and Peter uses it as an opportunity to preach Jesus. And as I told you last time, Peter's sermon was, was different than what he preached in, in chapter 2 at, at Pentecost, but he was still preaching the same message, a Jewish-focused message, a message of the kingdom, the return of the king who Israel had killed but was now resurrected. And this was all part of a renewed opportunity for Israel to accept Jesus as their Messiah. God was giving them another chance. And, and we learned last time that this new chance was because of their ignorance. God deemed them ignorant, and that was a very, very important distinction, and it's a very important word used in Scripture. Acts 3.17, that is a noteworthy verse to help you really understand what's going on in the beginning part of the book of Acts, of the first seven chapters to be specific, where the focus is still on Israel. And when we get to chapter 4, we're continuing the same narrative. You see, this was a very significant event in history, one that gets a fair bit of real estate in this book. So Peter is still preaching outside the temple, but what we're going to see today is that for the first time in the book of Acts, the apostles faced some real opposition. Now they were mocked in chapter 2, but, but today they're thrown in prison. And they begin to face some real persecution that will ultimately culminate in the murder of Stephen at the end of, of Acts chapter 7. So chapter 4, what we see is chapter 4 is a turning point of sorts in this book. As the rulers of Israel begin to put all their cards on the table. Because they are, are still refusing to see the truth. And even more than that, they're now antagonistic toward the truth. So as is always the case. When we get to chapter 4, we have a case of, of clashing authorities. Is God on the throne, or are they? And that's just been the story throughout history, hasn't it? It's even the story of our own life. Do we allow God to be God and run our life, or are we in control? And what we find, both in history and in our own life, is that when God is not recognized for who he really is, eventually bad things happen. And, and stuff starts going off the rails. And here in Acts chapter 4, for the leaders of Israel, things start going off the rails. And they begin losing control, and they don't like it. So they fight back in a very literal sense. And to me, this is a, it's a super interesting passage to study because of the way that we study the Bible. And one of the rules of, of, that we apply in Bible study is, is what's known as the law of first mention. Many of you are aware of that. And we usually apply that 
to words or phrases, and the Bible study rule states that the first time that a word or phrase is used in Scripture, it gives us some insight in, into how it's going to be used throughout Scripture. Now, it's not perfect. It's certainly not absolute, but it's something to look at and something to consider as you're studying Scripture. Well, well, today we're not looking at a specific word or a specific phrase per se, but if the church as we know it was born in Acts chapter 2, then today's passage, Acts chapter 4, is the first time in history that the church experiences persecution. And persecution, of course, it is a very intrinsic part of the Christian picture. And it always has been. It always has been. We, we see it didn't take long in history for the church to be persecuted. You could count it in days from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 4. And while we don't specifically have a first mention today, but instead of first time, I still believe this first time in today's passage gives us some real insight into persecution of the church generally. What it, what it is, where it comes from, how we handle it, those sorts of things. So I've titled today's message, Principles of Persecution. This is our special Mother's Day sermon. Happy Mother's Day. To you all, I was, you know, I was studying and thinking, how best could I relate to the mothers that we're going to have with us today and what they deal with, with their children and their husbands, and <laughs> landed on the principles of persecution. So here we go. But, you know, the persecution that we face as the church today, uh, specifically in America, at least currently, may be different than what these first century apostles experienced. You know, as time has progressed, persecution of the church has become all the more subtle, at least for us, than it was then. It's not nearly as obvious how exactly Satan persecutes today. Many times it goes on in secret, but make no mistake about it, there is still currently an ongoing attack on the church. And as you will see, the principles we are going to discuss today certainly still apply today. Therefore, we need to be aware of them. And now, again, Satan's attack against us today is more targeted towards the mind than the body. You see, at, at some points in history and in some parts of the world, still today, Satan expresses himself as he is described in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And lions are ravenous and use roaring and, and, and fear to their advantage. That's not the only description of Satan that we find in the Bible because how he attacks us in America today may be better described in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that says, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. And so he's subtle today. And he persecutes through things like gossip and backbiting and the sowing of discord. And like I said, he attacks our minds and our unity more than our bodies through physical abuse and imprisonment, and he even uses those in the church to do it at times. But make no mistake about it, his end goal is exactly the same as it was when Peter and John were, were thrown into prison for preaching Christ, is to render us ineffective for the Lord. At the bottom line, that's what his goal is, is to render us ineffective. And incidentally, it seems his techniques are, his techniques are, are, are working pretty well today because the church overall as a whole, as a, as a universal body, is, is generally ineffective. Now, the, the sad thing is, is 
I don't believe he even has to really persecute us most of the time to make us ineffective. He, he just has to tempt us. And he dangles the world in front of us, and we gladly jump all over it. But for those of you who want to be different than that, make no mistake, he will come after you through persecution. It is a biblical fact. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Not maybe, not might, shall suffer persecution. Obviously that, that verse is conditional. If you live godly, yea, all that will live godly. So if you live ungodly, you know, he'll likely leave you alone. But if you want to be a true follower of Christ, he won't. And I trust that you want to be a true follower of Christ. That's, that's why you're all here today. I'm, I'm sure of it. So we need to understand persecution from the Bible's perspective. And so like I said, persecution, it, 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 it takes different forms. It's not only physical suffering, like, like partly what we'll look at today. In fact, I put this on your outline sheet, the, the biblical definition for, for persecution just means to pursue or follow after. To pursue or follow after or press towards. It is the way Satan chases us. And he chases us relentlessly. It's the way he works against us to defeat us. So it's something that affects the church as we strive to worship and serve him the way he desires. So let's get into our study this morning and learn these principles of persecution so that we can be better prepared against the attack of our enemy. And we're going to study the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 4. So follow along with me. Acts chapter 4 verse 1, the Bible says, And as they spake unto the people... This is Peter and John. It's a continuation again from chapter 3. And as they speak unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he has made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby... We must be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the time we have together. Thank you for the mothers that are with us, all the ladies that we have today. And I, I pray that we have a special day together today in your word. I pray that everything that is said is true to it. I pray that you're honored and glorified through it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're, we're continuing on from chapter 3. And as Peter and John were preaching, Peter specifically, and pointing to the healing of the lame man, verse 1 says that the priest... And the, and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came upon them. They came upon Peter and John. And the reason why they came upon them is they didn't like what was happening. They didn't like what they were preaching. 
And that brings us to our first principle of persecution that we need to discuss, and that is the origin. And the origin, it's spiritual enemies. There's spiritual enemies that we have, and like I said, unfortunately, sometimes they're even within the church. But there are spiritual enemies that we face that provide persecution. You see, there are a lot of bad things that we face in this life. And there are a lot of Bible words used for those tough times. Persecution, we see trials, tribulation, trouble, just to name a few. And the truth is, some, I might even venture to say most, of those negative situations we find ourselves in are are our own fault. They're because of our own sin or our own bad decisions. And in Galatians 6, 7, the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. See, there are just consequences to pay for sin. And that plays out in real life every single day. And it's sad. It's sad to watch, especially in someone that you love. But that's the reality of life. Maybe you have felt that sting in your own life before. We all have at some level. So there are problems that we bring about ourselves. And then there are other troubles we face that are simply the result of living in a sin-stained world. Sometimes things happen to us or around us, but they're not necessarily because of us. It's, It's simply because of the curse of sin. Romans 8, verses 22 and 23 says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. You see, the curse of sin has affected everything. And it's brought about disease and struggle and trial and hardship. And that's just the result. But when it comes to persecution specifically, that's a different matter. Persecution comes from the enemies of God and the enemies of the work of God. We find the word persecution ten times in the Bible and, and of course, many other times with the, the various iterations of the word. And every time, the context is in reference to the work of a spiritual enemy. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 4. And again, we don't, we don't see the word persecution specifically, but that's what is happening. We'll, we'll see it later on in the chapter, just not today. Look again at verses 1 through 3. And as I speak unto the people, <clears throat> the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved, and they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold or, or, or in prison under the next day. For it was now eventide. And, and what we're going to learn next week is they bring about a council to, to, to put on a, a sort of sham trial. But, but we see these enemies. They, they appear right away in verse 1. The priest, the captain of the temple. And for a minute I want to highlight the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees are really the enemy group that takes prominence in the book of Acts. Right? In, the, in the Gospels, the, the primary enemy group were the Pharisees. But in Acts, the Sadducees rise to the top. And the Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day who didn't believe in the resurrection or the spiritual realm at all. It actually wasn't the case with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were conservative legalists. The Sadducees are theological liberals. 
So we see this in Acts 23.8. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And that's why the Sadducees were really struggling with Peter's message. He was pre preaching about a resurrected Jesus whom, whom heaven had received, and he was going to remain there in heaven until his second coming. And they didn't believe any of it. <laughs> they didn't believe any of that. And they didn't like that Jesus' apostles were preaching it, and the people were believing them and getting baptized and joining the church. So they had to stop that nonsense. So the Sadducees were leading the charge against the apostles. But they were not alone. They had help. We saw some of that help in verse 1. We see more of the help in verse 6. There are more spiritual enemies. Verse 6 says, And honest, the high priest Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together. At Jerusalem. And so this is the group. This isn't the first rodeo for some of these guys. They were literally part of the band who crucified Jesus. In John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, we see some of these guys. In the band, and the captain, and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. For he was father in law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest. That same year, now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So Caiaphas had already counseled the people that they should kill Jesus or everyone was going to end up following him. That it would be better for the nation if they just killed him. You can find that, we don't have time to go there, but you can find that story in John chapter 11. Now he had no idea what he was actually saying because it absolutely was better for the nation and the entire world. For them to kill him. But he had no idea what he was prophesying there because he certainly was not an advocate for Jesus. Later in John 18 and verse 28, the Bible says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas under the hall of judgment, and he was crucified shortly thereafter. You see, there are enemies to the plan of God, and they actively fight against God. And that obviously didn't only occur in the time of Jesus and his, possible, and his apostles. That's absolutely still the case today. But the, but the real question is why? why? What are they so mad about? What sets them off to fight their fight? Well, we see it very clearly in verse 2. These guys being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So do you know what upset them? Here's what upsets them. Here's what always upsets the spiritual enemies of God. It's the teaching and the preaching of God's word in truth. That is what they hate because they hate the truth. You see, Satan, is, Satan obviously doesn't want you to get saved, but if you do, he's okay with you being a Christian. Just as long as you don't talk about it. Just don't go tell anybody about it. They don't teach and preach the truth of God's Word and how He changed you and how He can change them too. And I, and I say all that because the word grieved there in verse 2 does not mean saddened. It means worry to the point of angry indignation. We see that in chapter 5, actually, the very next chapter, Acts 5, verses 17 and 18. And the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. 
It's the same type of thing they were doing in Acts chapter 4. It's just progressing more and more. We saw this same word with the enemies of God when we studied the book of Nehemiah. You remember um, Sam Ballot and Tobiah, those guys, when we went through the book of, of Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah 2 says, when Sam Ballot the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, heard of what Nehemiah was doing, it grieved them exceedingly. It grieved them exceedingly that there has come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And they were grieved that Nehemiah obeyed the words of God and was willing to say it out loud and go do something about it. And if you remember that story, by the time we got to Nehemiah chapter 6, they were trying to kill him. We see it also with Paul. Later in the book of Acts, when he was casting out a demon from a lady, Acts 16 verse 18 says, And, and this did she many days, but Paul being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And Paul wasn't just sad, he was mad at what was happening to this woman. And so were the enemies of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. They were mad at God's word. They couldn't handle the truth. And the enemies of the Lord never can. And they hate the truth. Earlier I read 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, where Satan is described as an angel of light. But the full passage actually shows how he works and who he works through as an angel of light. Look at verses 13 through 15, put it all together. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. See, sometimes they're within the church. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You see, don't ever think that this stuff is innocent. There's an agenda going on behind the scenes because they hate God's word. So they corrupt it and they change it. And we don't have time really to explore all of this, but I'll show you 2 Corinthians 2.17. Paul talked about it through this book. He says, for we are not as many, and I want you to notice that word many, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So they don't like what this book says. So they just change it to say what they want it to say. It's because they hate the truth. And they persecute those that speak the truth. Think it not strange, dear brethren. The origin is satanic. And it comes from the spiritual enemies of God that Satan uses. He has his handlers but it's satanic in origin. But listen, here's the good news. They can't win. No matter how hard they try, and that brings us to the second principle of persecution, and that is the outcome. And the outcome of persecution is spiritual expansion. You see, the result of persecution of the church has always been expansion of the church, growth of the church, spiritual and or physical growth. That is, true in the Bible, and that is true in church history. This, in fact, I think is one of the reasons why the American church overall isn't growing deeper today. Because like we talked about in the introduction, we're falling to temptation, and therefore not even actually facing persecution. 
But look at the progression of Acts chapter 4. The spiritual enemies show up. They lay hands on Peter and John, and that was not in a good way, by the way. They weren't ordaining them or anything like that. Don't worry that. They're laying hands on them and throwing them in prison. But look at the outcome. Verse 4. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. You just can't stop the Lord. You just can't stop him. And by the way, you can't stop the Lord's people when they are all in on the mission. That's why we need to endure persecution and not give up in the face of it. Because if we just stay true to him and we stay true to his word, God will bring about the victory. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 37 says... Uh, Craig quoted part of this earlier this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughters. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And through that victory... What we see play out in the Bible is that God brings about growth. And here in Acts chapter 4, it's numeric growth, right? The number 5,000. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes it's spiritual growth. It's growth in your personal walk with the Lord or, or spiritual growth within a church. Now, you know, you'd like to see both. You'd like to see more people and a deeper walk with Christ in those people. But either way, God is going to use persecution to expand his people. And listen, persecution is what God used in the book of Acts to help fulfill his mission. You remember the mission, right? It's the, it's the key verse in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. Jesus says but to his apostles, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And they did that, correct? But... And that's, they did, it's true. But, but what we've seen so far in the book, and we will see through chapter 7, is that everything is pretty much confined to Jerusalem. They don't take their witness beyond Jerusalem until after the stoning of Stephen. And guess what God used to expand his reach? Look at Acts 8.1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. This is Stephen's death. And at that time, there was what? A great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The spiritual enemies were trying to stop the work of God, but God used it for his own glory. He used it to supernaturally expand his kingdom. Because what happened in Judea and in Samaria? Well, we read about it in Acts 9.31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. You just can't stop God. You can't get ahead of him. Listen to Joseph's account of, of the persecution, his personal persecution that he faced at the hand of his brothers. Right? He gives the outcome in, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He said, but as for you, speaking to his brothers, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save what? Much people alive. 
It's Paul's account as well. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And listen, that is just a testimony of church history as well. You can read book after book about what has, God has done through the persecution of the church. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you should. The outcome of persecution is expansion. And that's because of our third principle of persecution, which is the opportunity that comes with it. And the opportunity is surprising evangelism. You see, when persecution hits, God brings with it an opportunity for evangelism that could never occur otherwise. I want you to see this in our passage. Look at verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and, and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, that as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, right, they're in a circle. They're in a council. It's the Sanhedrin. It's, you know, we'll talk about some of that next week. And they put Peter and John in the middle in this kind of mock trial. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? They want to know where their authority is coming from. And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And now this is incredible. Because all of the leaders of Israel, the priest, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the high priest, the Annas, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, whoever they were, we can't know from Scripture. Everyone related to the high priest. They were all brought together in one council. That's what they're called in verse 15. We'll see that next week just as a hint. Councils aren't good. But they all come together and they ask Peter, by what power or by what name have you done this? So he answers them. And in doing so, he got the opportunity to preach Jesus to this council. And listen, there is no way in a million years Peter could have brought this specific group together on his own. All the leaders of Israel. He couldn't have brought them together for any reason, let alone to preach Jesus to them. Impossible. Except, as Luke 1.37 says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. God said, you want to persecute my people? Fine, I'll let you but you're going to have to listen to me. And that's exactly who they were hearing from, by the way. At the beginning of verse 8, it says Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost and began speaking. And this was just the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus had given his apostles when he initially sent them out in Matthew chapter 10. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 20. Jesus speaking says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but be aware of men. For they will deliver you up to the councils, we're going to see that in verse 15, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But listen, but when they deliver you up, take no thought for how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. 
For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And Acts chapter 4 was the exact scenario that Jesus described here in Matthew chapter 10. And he said, you don't have to worry about what to say. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. So we can know for a fact that God's providence was working behind the scenes in Acts chapter 4. And he spoke through Peter the exact words he wanted those rulers of Israel to hear. And what were those words? Well, look at verse 9. Here's what Peter said. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. You want to know what power and what name we did this in? It was the guy you killed. It was the Messiah. He's the one. The God's raised from the dead. He's the one. And this is a picture. You guys were ignorant, but now you're not. You're no longer ignorant. You can know that resurrection is true. I just showed you a picture of it. And then he doesn't stop. Then he just drives in deeper. Because look at verse 11. This is the stone. Speaking of Jesus, this is a stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And he just points them to Jesus. And here the Lord through Peter at, at the end, he quotes Psalm 118 about the cornerstone. And it's interesting because the guys he was speaking to, they were the builders. That's what he said, you builders. They were supposed to be the ones that were to build up Israel and lead Israel back to God, but they didn't. They set him at naught or they set him aside. Just like their ancestors had done, they were following the wrong footsteps. That reference in Psalm 118, look at verses 22 and 23. It says, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And we could take you to so many verses in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and many other places, Matthew 16, to prove to you that Jesus is that stone. He is that cornerstone. We just ha don't have time for it. You can look it up on your own. But this was a messianic prophecy of Jesus' first coming. If you were to follow Psalm 118, it's the prophecy of, of what we know as Palm Sunday. When everyone was waving palm leaves and, and crying, Hosanna, save now as Jesus entered Jerusalem. But then he was refused. And Peter is telling the literal leaders who refused him exactly what they did. And in doing so, he's, he's letting them know that there's a chance to make it right. And it's interesting because Jesus had already used this exact same prophecy, prophecy to, exact, to condemn these exact same guys just, just a few weeks earlier. Look, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So now, in a matter of just a couple months, they've heard this twice. You guys refused the stone, and he is, in fact, the head of the corner. You messed this one up. This one you got wrong, so make it right. And the only way to make it right is through the name of Jesus. He's the power, and he is the authority. 
That's verse 12. There is neither salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And this is a verse that we use in a salvation, in an evangelism context. And, and even though doctrinally this is contained within a message to Israel in a kingdom context, there's absolutely nothing wrong with using Acts 4.12 in an evangelism context today. Because it was true to the Jews who needed to go back to Jesus and receive him as their king. And it's true for salvation for everyone today. There's no other name. There's no other way. Even our kids know the name of Jesus is usually the correct answer to any spiritual question that's asked. And they ask Peter a question. He says, Jesus. And, and in his answer, Peter's leaving no room for confusion. He's leaving no room for interpretation. And that's because Jesus didn't either. You know what Jesus said of himself in John 14, 6? Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other way. But going back to our point, what an incredible opportunity that Peter and John had to preach Jesus that wouldn't have come if they hadn't faced this persecution. And listen, I completely understand that we don't view, we don't think of persecution as a good thing. I don't. I get it. I don't desire it any more than any of you. But we do have to acknowledge Scripture and how God uses it for good. How God uses it as an opportunity. So if we're facing it and we're going through it, we do need to put the mind of Christ on and view it that way. And try, as, as hard as it may be, and I'm not trying to minimize anything that people go through, but, but try to minimize as much as possible the emotion of the moment and the feelings that lead us to doubt God or, 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 or just clam up in ourselves or whatever and not look out and not look eternally. Try to break through all that and see what God is doing because you might just be surprised and what God wants to do through you. Because again, it is part of the Christian life for those who will live godly and not carnally. Paul said it to the Philippians as well, for unto you it is given. Like it's, it's, now not everyone lives this life, but, but this is the plan. It's given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And if you're able to maintain that godly mindset and recognize the outcome and the opportunity you'll be able to see the blessing of the last principle of persecution, and that is the overcoming. And we are able to overcome through the Spirit's engagement. Through Spirit engagement. You see, when persecution hits, you have two options. You can tuck tail and run. You can deny Christ and give in to those spiritual enemies and let them win for the time being. Or you can trust the Lord. And speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. And when you do that, you are an overcomer. And listen to me, this is where it gets difficult at times. You're an overcomer no matter the physical outcome. Because God looks at things at a different plane. Because you have the promise of the Holy Spirit's engagement in the situation. You see, Peter and John didn't fight. 
They submitted to the persecution. I mean, Peter just answered the question that was asked of him. He answered boldly, and we should always do that. But, but when he did that, the Spirit of God got involved. Back to verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them. And he goes and he starts talking. Speaking the truth about Jesus. He didn't defend himself. You know, so many times, us, myself included, when, when we get into the situation, the first thing I want to say is, yeah, but I didn't do that. I, that's not right. Whatever. Peter didn't do any of that. <laughs> you know what Peter did? He preached Jesus. He didn't defend himself. He didn't defend John. He didn't accuse them of unlawful or false imprisonment, which was actually true. <laughs> they didn't do anything legally wrong. He just preached Jesus. And if he would have done that other stuff and been mad and focused temporally instead of eternally, the opportunity to preach Jesus might not have happened. And listen, when we follow Peter's example, which is Christ's example, you can guarantee that God will be pleased and the Spirit will be working on your behalf. But you must do your part because you won't be filled with the Spirit if you're not walking in the Spirit. And we walk in the Spirit as we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And you get that as you compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16. And listen, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly is more than just reading your Bible. It's, it's dwelling in it. It's, 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 dwelling is abiding. And you abide, you abide in God's words as they abide in you. As you ingest them, so you do have to read them, you do have to study them, take them in. But then you, you ingest them and you digest them. And when you do that with physical food, your body takes the nutrients from the food and uses that for your health and then it disposes of the waste. And it's the same spiritually with God's word. It's just that with God's word, there is no waste. God's word never returns void. It is all good for you. But you have to sit in it and meditate upon it and let it get in you and do its work a work that only it can do. And then in response, you live it out, and it becomes part of who you are. And before you know it, you're walking in the Spirit. It's not a mysterious thing. You just have, you just have to let God's Word dwell in you, and you live according to it. That's walking in the Spirit. And then your goal becomes to please the Lord more than you desire to please yourself. And when you do that, listen to me, God will take good care of you. Again, no matter the physical outcome. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And, and notice it says keeping of their souls, not the keeping of their bodies. But the point is, you can trust the Lord. And when you do, you overcome. He is a faithful creator. He is trustworthy. And he knows exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. And when Jesus first started talking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, do you remember what he called him? Let me, let me remind you. John 14, 26 says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And then down in, in John 16, 7, Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you.
but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Comforter. Why did he do that? Well, at least in part because of this. Because of all that live godly shall suffer persecution. And he knows that. And he led the way. And there is, he's, he's there to comfort us when we're going through what he went through. It brings us into the fellowship of his sufferings. And, and fellowship brings comfort. And God has a way of just making things okay, even when, truth be told, they're not okay. I don't know how. It's just God being God. He loves his children, and he takes care of his own. And he's a faithful creator. And we get to be overcomers because of it. So please know that overcoming persecution is possible. In fact, it is part of God's plan. It is certainly his desire. He's made a way for it to work. And it's through the filling of the Holy Spirit. So walk in him and overcome through, you, you can be an overcomer in and through any situation, even persecution. And that will bring you closer to the Lord. I mean, it just, it's a full circle. It goes back to our, you know, our second point of, of drawing us deeper and drawing us closer. And you'll be used in ways that maybe you didn't even imagine, maybe in surprising ways. And, and God will bring about opportunities to, to, to share the Lord. And it's just God working. That's just what he does. But we must be willing to walk through those hard times with him, trusting him in the process. And these are the principles of persecution that, that we need to get down in our life so that he can be glorified in and through us. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And I'm just going to pray, and, and we're going to sing a final song like we always do. And, and that's your time to do business. If you have any business to do with the Lord, this is your time to do it. And so use this altar, use your pew as an altar, whatever you need to do. And if we have anyone here that's not saved, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never put your faith in that name that is above all names, that there's no other name through which salvation is possible. Let me introduce you to him today. I'd love you to introduce you to Jesus, the Savior of souls today. And if you have any questions about that, just come forward and catch me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for even the tough topics that, that you give us an explanation and an understanding of, of not only what we're going through, but how we can overcome in it and how, how you can be glorified through it. And so, I, Lord, I pray that you do that in our life and in, in all the situations, the trouble that we face, Lord, that, that we can look to you and we can see you in them. Um, even in the darkest of, darkest of times, that your light will shine. And Lord, we love you and we're so grateful for all, all that you do, who you are, and how you have saved our souls and for those of us that know you. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.